Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 251. 251 times. Wow. This is Douglas Wilson. Thank you for joining me. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Christian nationalism, which is a, uh, currently apparently a thing, right? So um, I went many, many years without calling myself a Christian nationalist, but all of a sudden I find myself in the middle of this. A month or so ago, uh, Meet the Press came out and interviewed us about our project, uh, evangelistic project and cultural project here in Moscow, and they had a segment on us. And I was uh, uh, surprised to see the the whole segment was framed by them as uh, in in terms of Christian nationalism. It's not a term I would have picked out for myself at a store if I'd or an item on the menu I would have. Uh, selected if I were in a restaurant. But it's also uh, a term I'm willing to work with, especially considering that the alternatives are things like uh, Christo-fascist and Theo-fascist and religious extremist and white supremacist and, and so on. A Christian, a Christian nationalism is a term that can admit of uh, a reasonable, sane definition and one that's uh, biblically uh, defensible. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about framing that discussion. When uh, people say Christian nationalists, what they're trying to do is evoke sort of the uh, the uh, nationalism of the uh, of the Nazis. You know the uh, the so the the ideology that grips a country and takes over, and and that country is going to go roistering down the road in its imperialistic way. And that's not what I mean by nationalism at all. Uh, you've basically got, there are basically three options when we're looking at the planet and the fact that we've got billions of people on this planet, these people are going to be organized in a certain way. And, uh, and there are only a limited number of options. So you could have globalism, you know, uh, everybody's under the authority, authority of the United Nations or the World Economic Council, globalism, internationalism. You could have tribalism on the other end, where uh, which is what you see in failed states that crack up, and you've got different uh, competing warlords fighting over small pieces of territory. Or you could have in the middle, the occupying the middle position, nationalism. So you could have globalism, you could have uh, nationalism, or you could have tribalism. Now, each one of those things could be secular or believing. So you could have Christian tribalism. You could have a Christian tribe, for example. You could have secular tribalism, where the tri the tribe was defined by ideology or race or ethnicity or something like that. You could have, on the other end, you could have a Christian globalism, or you could have a secular globalism. Uh, secular globalism sounds like a hellhole to me, so I don't I don't want that. And Christian globalism is the sort of thing that we post-millennialists believe will come into focus finally uh, 50 years before the Lord returns, when the, when the kids have to be disciplined for playing with the cobras and the lion eats straw like the ox. So uh, I don't think that uh, Christian or believing internationalism or Christian globalism 
is in the cards anytime soon. And that means our choice is between secular nationalism or Christian nationalism, unbelieving nationalism or believing nationalism. Now, that being the case, why would a Christian opt for anything other than Christian nationalism? What you're doing is you're saying, what would you rather have? A nationalism that does things that God says they should do, or a nationalism that refuses to do things that God says to do? Well, the Christian critics of Christian nationalism are able to mount their criticisms and and, uh, not look like they're raving because they and their audience, many times, uh, large numbers of their audience, have bought into the myth of neutrality. They believe that it's possible for you to be sane and sober and judicious and fair and pursue justice without any reference to Christ. They they believe that there is such a thing as Christless justice. Now, Orthodox Christians believe there is such a thing as common grace, and that means certain uh, sinful propensities of man are restrained by God's common grace. But when it comes right down to it, when people are being consistent with their worldview, there is no way that you can have a secular establishment and not have homosexual marriage and not have abortion on demand and not have drag queens twerking in the school library. That's the way it's going to go. That's the way it's going to be. So Christian nationalism is um, one option out of about six. Let's say secular tribalism, Christian tribalism, secular nationalism, Christian nationalism, uh, secular internationalism, or Christian internationalism. Uh, Christian internationalism, we're not there yet. Christian tribalism, that would be okay uh, if we were dealing with a failed state and everything disintegrated and you had to belong to some tribe. I'd prefer to be in a Christian tribe than a non believing tribe. But I I think that we can. Uh, labor for the common good much more effectively within the framework of nations. And that means we want to make our nation, bring our nation to the point where we conform more fully to the will of God for us. And that means Christian nationalism. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 251 of the podcast, we are having quite the edifying journey as we labor to accumulate credit hours in our study of sin, which we are calling hamartiology. The word we're treating this week is echo, echo, E-N-E-C-H-O, echo, which is rendered a few different ways depending on the context. So one of the renderings is have a quarrel with, another is to urge, but the context represents that of a quarrel. And another rendering is entangle with. So the first refers to the sinful attitude that Herodias had toward John the Baptist. Uh, This is what we read. Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. That's in Mark 6.19. She had a long, slow, simmering grudge, we would say, a very malicious grudge, which ended in the murder of the prophet. So it wasn't, uh, she wasn't mildly irritated. Her quarrel with him was a deep-seated grudge, and she wanted his head. And, and eventually got it. Uh, this grudge was the result of John the Baptist rebuking Herod for stealing her, Herodias, from his brother Philip. 
The fact that she had a grudge against John the Baptist for the rebuke indicates that she was stolen not unwillingly. In other words, uh, she went along with it. She, uh, she helped Herod steal her away from her former husband. And John the Baptist had gone to Herod and said, it's not lawful for you to have her. And um, I remember years ago reading in a Christian book, a book that was trying to dissuade Christians from getting involved in politics. And the author said, basically, John the Baptist cut a promising um, ministry short by getting involved in politics. By He shouldn't have rebuked uh, Herod the way he did. So, the second translation amounts to a fierce quarrel. This is the word that lies underneath the word urge in Luke 11. Uh, here's what it says. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things. So uh, they basically, Jesus said, woe to you lawyers, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves. You were basically a dog in the manger. You wouldn't take, um, you wouldn't take any yourself and you kept others from coming. And so when he said this, the scribes and the Pharisees erupted. They erupted at him and they began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him with many things. That what about, what about, what about, what about? So this, I think this urge him vehemently would be uh, tantamount to a quarrel. It's very much like the attitude that Herodias had toward John the Baptist. And the last rendering has a sense of getting all tangled up, which, come to think of it, is what happens in quarrels also. This is in Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There's our word, an echo, entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't get all tied up. Don't get all tangled up. Don't get uh, tripped up by uh, these legalistic rules and regulations. And that often is what happens in a quarrel. Uh, he said, she said, this happened. No, they started. And pretty soon you've got a, a regular rat's nest all tangled up. God don't never change. He's God. So the book review for the podcast, uh, episode 251, is a book called Tragic Consequences. Tragic Consequences. And this book is by um, uh, two gents, North and Goich. I don't know how to pronounce Goich. It's G-O-E-T-S-C-H-E, I think. Or maybe S-C-H. Anyway, Goich. I'll, and the North here is Oliver North of uh, Iran-Contra fame. So, uh, tragic consequences. Uh, this is um, quite, a, uh, quite a straightforward and simple book, uh, but, but it's a very good resource for uh, people who are just getting involved in some of the cultural uh, conflicts of our day. The book goes chapter by chapter through a number of, uh, well, tragic consequences of our cultural apostasy. And the, the thesis of the book is that we have turned away from Christ, we've turned away from God, and have embraced sin. And they say this pretty much in every chapter, if not in every chapter. Uh, we've turned away from God, and we've embraced sin, 
And there's no way that you can embrace sin without having certain things follow. So the the uh, it goes chapter by chapter. There's a chapter on pornography. There's a chapter on road rage and road rage and sideline rage. There's a chapter on teen suicide. There's a chapter on abortion. There's a chapter. So it it basically goes through all the ways in which the um, disease of our cultural unbelief has rotted out everything. And and it's very simple, uh, very simple solutions presented over and over again. God has given us the gospel. God has given us a way of turning back to him through Christ. And they have, they argue that we need to do, do this. We, we must return to Christ. We must return to God through Christ. And the only alternative to going back to Christ is to remain in our sin. And if we remain in our sin, it will continue to not work. It will continue to fall apart. It will, con- it will continue to disintegrate in our hands. So uh, basically, oftentimes, debates about uh, national policy and issues like abortion or same-sex uh, unions get sort of swept up into the political sphere. And this book is very good at keeping it at the basic level of sin. We are doing this, these things. We are living this way. We are arguing for these things because we don't want Christ to rule over us. We would rather have our lusts rule over us. And so consequently, the country is falling apart. Consequently, everything is coming unstuck. So Tragic Consequences is not, it's not a high-level book. It's, it's not, I don't mean to say that it's unscholarly. It's not, it, it's not attempting to be scholarly. It's just very simple, entry-level stuff. Uh, this is bad. Don't do it. This next thing is also bad. We shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and there are suggested prayers uh, in each chapter for people that you suspect are getting caught up in whether it's substance abuse or anger issues or dealing with the aftermath of an abortion, how to pray for them, how to, how to think through it, how to talk to people about it, and provide some very helpful verses of Scripture that will help identify the nature of the sin involved. It's a good book, Tragic Consequences by North and Goitch. Mm-hmm. 